Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's Saturday, May 29th, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. I'm Chantelle Alcouri. And I'm Tanita Rizagi. National Reconciliation Week has just begun, and for today's show, we're amplifying the voices of First Nations people by hearing from them about the Indigenous housing at uni and how returning artefacts can be part of the reconciliation process. But first, we're discussing the tragic death of Gamil Leroy man Michael Peachy in Gunnada, New South Wales. And we want to hear from you. Text us in on 0409 945 945 or tweet it us is at absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Heads up to our First Nations listeners. This first story mentions someone who has passed. The theme of this year's Reconciliation Week is more than a word, reconciliation takes action. Yet, despite this, not much has been done about First Nations people dying at the hands of police in the 30 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Just last week in Gunnada, rural New South Wales, yet another Indigenous life was lost following an altercation with police. We're joined by Janetta Quinn-Bates, a journalist from NITV, to explain what happened to Gamilaroi man Michael Peachy. Janetta, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me this morning, ladies. Uh, So, yeah, I flew out to Gunnada last week to speak to family members who were protesting the death, family members and supporters, sorry, who were protesting the death of 27-year-old Michael Peachy. Uh, Michael was restrained by police after a call was made to a Herbert Street address in Gunnada where police say he became aggressive and pepper spray and a taser were deployed. Michael lost consciousness, an ambulance was called, but sadly, Michael lost his life. Now, police say a female officer was treated for an injury to her knee and a bite wound to her right forearm. The incident is being treated as a critical incident and not a death in custody, which have the definitions of them both that... Uh, on the police website, it's still, it, it's very, there's a, there's a thin line. It's up to the regional commander to make that discretion as to whether it's declared a death in custody or a critical incident, and this is what, is what they've decided. Well, you've mentioned that his death won't be considered a death in custody. How has the community reacted to this? I'm not sure if the community completely understand yet that it won't be a death in custody, they're, they're absolutely outraged and it clearly very distressed. The family has made it quite clear that they tried to reach out to numerous agencies in Gunnedah, in Tamworth, and were unable to get any support for Michael. In the three days leading up to his death, the family claimed that, they, that he had no less than six interactions with local police. The police were well aware that he had needed support with his mental health, they basically say that they begged. They begged local mental health organisations. They begged Aboriginal organisations. They begged the local hospital in Canada, mental health in Tamworth. They say nobody could offer them support. Uh, nobody could help Michael without an assessment, but nobody would assess him. So it's they were feeling quite, quite helpless. 
In your opinion, from speaking to the community, are First Nations people in rural New South Wales getting adequate treatment and care for their mental health issues? From what I've heard from the community, I don't even think that this is a First Nations issue. I think this is an issue for this whole community. Uh, I think the access to mental health support is it's, it's not there. Uh, Greens MP David Truebridge was also out there, so he had done a lot of research and contacting agencies in the area, and he actually informed me that there are seven GPs in Gunnedah. They've all closed their books. So unless you are a existing patient, there is no there is no mental there is no health assistance at all in Gunnedah. The seven GPs have closed their books, so you can't even get a GP, and that doesn't matter what your heritage is. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio ninety four point five. If you've just joined us, we're talking to NITV journalist Janetta Quinn Bates about the death of Gamilaroi man Michael Peachy. This week, a rally was held in Gunnada for Michael's death. How has the how has his community reacted to this tragedy? There was, a, I would say, about 150 to 200 supporters at, that marched from Morsley Park to the Gunnada police station last Wednesday in protest and demanding demanding answers, demanding accountability and demanding access to support for the community. So something like this doesn't happen again. It was clear that they were very distraught. It was quite heartbreaking to see his three-year-old little son there uh, holding signs with his face on it. Uh, it's quite, yeah, it's quite, it's, it's quite a sad situation for everybody involved. Janetta, Michael is the sixth Aboriginal man to allegedly die at the hands of police just this year. Where does his death fit into the Australian Black Lives Matter movement? I think it's the Black Lives Matter movement is some people have, you know, different people have different opinions. We got a lot more attention with the Black Lives Matter movement after the death of George Floyd in the United States. I do find it unfortunate that it takes international events for people to actually take notice of what is happening in this country. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991, where there were recommendations handed down, they have not been implemented. There are still preventable deaths occurring. There have been over 450 deaths since this Royal Commission. If some of if, if these were implemented, we would not still be losing people at the, at the rate we're losing people. I think accountability is important. I think if police are not held accountable for their actions, these deaths will keep occurring. And what is happening now to help Michael Peachy and his family get justice for his death? Michael Peachy's family and supporters have set up a crowdfunding page, so there is a GoFundMe there. If there's anybody that would like to help, last time I looked it was like $200 on it. So they're not, they don't have a huge profile. They're not a wealthy family. I feel for them. I don't know how they're going to move forward but I know that they are desperate to get some more support for their region for their area for for Canada. Thanks so much for coming on the show Janetta. Thanks so much for having me. We'll put a link up of the GoFundMe that she mentioned on our socials. That was NITV journalist Janetta Quinn Bates speaking about Camille Leroy man Michael Peachy's death at the hands of police and the mental health system that failed him. Don't go anywhere because up next we're going to hear from the traditional custodians of La Perouse about what returning spears can mean for reconciliation for them. But now we've got a song for you. 
This next one is a damning reminder of police brutality and deaths in custody, off the back of Michael's story. From Barker, this is Our Lives Matter, language warning. Fact chat. Text 0409 945 945. I welcome to the House today members of the La Perouse United Aboriginal Men's Group. These men have just visited the National Museum to view a set of spears on display at the museum. These spears were stolen by Cook and his men from the ancestors of these great Australians in the gallery today. They are on loan from the Cambridge Museum, like thousands of other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artefacts. They are not accessible by their rightful owners. These men cannot tell their children and their grandchildren of the story of the importance of these artefacts. As a gesture of truth-telling, as a gesture of recognition, as a gesture of reconciliation, all these artefacts and others should be returned to their people in Australia where requested. They belong on country. That was MP Matt Thistlewaite in a statement to federal, uh, federal Parliament in March supporting the repatriation of spears by the La Perouse United Men's Aboriginal Corporation. At the start of the month, it was widely reported that three of the spears would be returned to the descendants of the Gwigal clan of the Darawal people, with plans for the artefacts to arrive this week to open a temporary exhibition to coincide with Reconciliation Week. Backchat producer Eddie Diamond speaks to Darawal man Ray Ingray, chairperson to the Gujagov Foundation, which aims to instill a strong sense of cultural identity and belonging in the children of the La Perouse Aboriginal community. They discuss the importance of repatriation and also the challenges faced within the process. There were orders that had done a lot of work in the early, uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, came to the decision that, um, and, and the understanding that it's very difficult to repatriate artifacts from cultural institutions overseas. Um, there's no legal obligation for them to return those artifacts, even though they were taken all those years ago without permission being provided and our old people also recognise that if they weren't in a secure museum grade environment we wouldn't be looking at them today and so you know the fact that we're able to enter into long-term loans through institutions like the national museum of australia and our local community here in Botany Bay has an opportunity to access them for educational purposes and you know in the future we hope that we could enter into long-term agreements where we could house them back at Kernel on their own clan group country and have them displayed in a museum grade facility there at Kernel for everybody to see. And why is it important to have access to cultural objects? This is, even though they're, they're quite old, you know, they were taken 251 years ago, it's still a practice that happens in my community here at La Perouse. Now, we have senior Gwigwa elders that come in and have been doing so for, for nearly 20 years, teaching the young kids here, particularly the boys, on how to make those spears the old way, how they use introduced items like metal to make them quicker, and last longer, and also how to use it, which is quite important. So people like Uncle Rodney Mason, who's a senior Gwigal clan leader in our community, Uncle Shane Williams, who's a senior Gwigal clan leader, come in and show the kids 
how to make that. We have other durable elders that come and talk about how to use fishing implements and stuff like that. And even though they're quite old, we still have old people in our community that know how to make them exactly the same way that our old people were making 151 years ago. It's a good, good message to tell our kids that, you know, we are an ancient culture, but we're, we're a living culture. We're the oldest living culture in the world. And so where they're able to create these like the old way and learn how to use them, it just shows that there's a continuation of culture that happens right here in the heart of Sydney. And beyond that, what significance do these objects hold for the history of our country more widely? Oh, look, don't get me wrong. It, it is a, you know, you, it was the first time that Europeans, particularly the British, um, engaged with, with Aboriginal people. Um, you know, there was violence. There was theft. Um, it really set the scene what was to come. Um, however, um, you know, it's a thing that maybe the object that we can recognise is that haven't had a good history. However, it is our history. And until we recognise that, yes, we may not have had a great history throughout the last 230-odd years in settlement, um, you know, we, we won't be able to move forward together um, for a better future if we're still denying truth-telling to be told. Um, the spears themselves, you know, that it's a mixed one. Um, for us, Darrell people, we're told that when the sales came in to Gamay 251 years ago and then in 1770 and then again all those sales in 1788, that become a part of our culture, that become a part of our dreaming. And so we, Dharawal people, we're taught to have a neutral stance because it's a part of who we are. And so for a lot of our people, a lot of people in general like to look at the exotic side of it and feed into the, you know, the violence and stuff that occurred on that day and protest. For Dharawal people, we don't protest. We don't celebrate, we just reflect. And for the spears, you know, we're happy that they've survived so that we can still look at them today and, like I said, compare them to what we, our old people teach our young kids today and they can show that there's not much of a difference between them old spears and the ones that our old people can still make today. The proposed Reconciliation Week exhibition to display these spears close to country did not end up going ahead. As we just learnt, the road to repatriation is a long and challenging one. I'm Eddie Diamond, reporting for Backchat. That was Backchat producer Eddie Diamond, looking at the repatriation of Gweagle Spears back to Darawal country from the UK. Stay tuned because up next we're talking to Professor Larissa Berendt about an Indigenous residential college being built at UTS. But before that, we're going to hit play on this one. From his EP Always Was... This was Mrs. Briggs' Go to War, featuring Thelma Plum. Language warning. FBI 94.5 Living on campus at university can be such a rite of passage for some people, but personally, a lot of the residential colleges can feel a bit soulless. Yeah, it's often lots of grey concrete, furnished with very bland hotel room art. 
So we were very excited this week when UTS announced that it's planning to build one of the first Indigenous residential colleges. The $100 million building will house a mix of Indigenous and non-Indigenous residents and feature designs and artworks from Indigenous architects and artists. To talk about how this will affect current and future students at UTS, we're joined by award-winning author, filmmaker and researcher, Professor Larissa Barrent. Larissa, thanks thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. So how did this concept of an Indigenous residential college happen? I guess in a way it's been a bit of an evolution about the increasing presence of Indigenous people in the higher education sector, not just as students where the numbers are growing, also as academics and that those numbers are growing across all the professions, the number of our mobs that are, you know, in positions teaching and researching is growing. Um, there's also been, I think, a greater challenge to the sort of Western uh, thinking in universities with the introduction now of more interest in Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous methodologies. So in a way, it's been an evolution to get to this point where we're sort of saying, well, let's actually create a physical space that is about celebrating Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous culture, and, and a building that is inclusive and allows people to really feel what an Indigenous-led space feels like in a place of learning. To your knowledge, have there been other attempts at building Indigenous residential accommodation in Australian unis? Look, I think all universities think deeply about how to best accommodate Indigenous students and and accommodation is obviously one of the big challenges for all students. I think what's unique about what we're doing at UTS is um, we're actually really looking to give a physical space to the concept of Indigenous knowledges that people can live in. And although it's student accommodation, uh, as you mentioned, we're looking at this as a space where we've got creative practice with artists. We're also looking at it as a a space where uh, the academics will also be highly engaged. So it's not just a place where people will go and sleep and then come back onto campus. We actually see it as a big part of the life of the campus. And, And many of us that are working at UTS are actually looking forward to being able to use the space as well. So is Indigenous residential accommodation at university something that you can see being adopted all over Australia? I think wherever we see successful models, when we see what works, other people want to emulate it. And, you know, I would hope that that this would be something that would um, be incredibly influential across the sector. I know a lot of people are already um, looking at it. And I think the other thing that's really innovative about it that I hope is adopted as a principle is Obviously, we're building this space using Indigenous um, vision, Indigenous creativity for Indigenous students. But as you rightly said, the concept is that non-Indigenous people are just as welcome in this space. And I think that's also something that the sector should pick up too. It's about ensuring every person who walks into a place of higher learning gets a deeper understanding of the cultures of this country, our first culture. Um, And I can't think of a better way to do it than in this kind of shared space that merges living and learning um, and brings the whole of the campus into it. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Professor Larissa Beren about Indigenous accommodation at university. Larissa, have you witnessed Indigenous student enrolments being affected by COVID-19 and university fee increases? 
Look, every, it is a big deal for anyone from a, a low socioeconomic or a remote area to come to university. So every time we see increases in fees, particularly in the areas where a lot of our Indigenous students perhaps are first attracted to, so the humanities and social sciences, that we have our students across all disciplines, they're always going to have an impact and that's concerning. I think overall, over the years, we've seen an increase in numbers. And one of the things that we've, we look very strategically at doing is ensuring that there's good financial support for students coming in from those disadvantaged backgrounds as much as we can. And also that there is the cultural support, that those two things kind of tie together. There is the financial imperative, but also the needing to feel like it's a welcoming space and a space where you can thrive and learn. So we've had to really focus on that. The real challenge for universities is understanding that they're the things that we need to provide to make students feel welcome and to thrive. But the constant cuts to higher education and the lack of support for that sector means we are less and less able to do that. So at one time we were in a position to offer that to most of our students and now it's becoming a much tighter process and it concerns me that if there's not enough resourcing that we might risk falling into a, a case where, um, you know, arbitrary uh, hierarchies of merit are used to distinguish between deserving and less deserving students. So I'm really concerned about that trend. We have seen through COVID, though, a lot of our mob thinking about coming back to do extra study, maybe to retrain, maybe to look at getting uh, into a more secure work workforce. Um, so we're really encouraged by that. But I think that the... the challenge for us to meet is to meet that interest and that need with the, the support that students need to ensure that they come in and we're not setting them up for fail. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Professor Larissa Berent talking to us about the construction of an Indigenous residential college at UTS. And that's all we have time for on the show this week. A massive thank you to our producers, Charles Rushforth, Eddie Diamond, Millie Roberts, Rebecca Menebog and Sana Sheikh. This has been Backchat, your go-to wrap for news and current affairs. You can catch us next week at 9.30am, but stay tuned for Limbs Akimbo up next. We'll leave you with a song. In a statement, this artist said the system isn't broken. It's working. It always was, always will be. Sovereignty was never ceded. This is Ziggy Ramo with Little Things. Mm-hmm.